You will find my text this morning in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1. The section that we read, which is a lengthy section indeed, from verse 12 to verse 21. But for the purpose of a text, uh, we take the opening words of verse 19. We have the prophetic word confirmed, or we have the prophetic word made more sure. These verses present us with two major themes in Holy Scripture. Uh, the first is the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 17, as you've been given notice, but also in Mark and Luke as well. Uh, there in verses 16 to 18, Peter speaks about uh, the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in connection with the transfiguration which they witnessed, hearing the divine voice with their own ears, seeing it with their own eyes. And that is something that we should spend more time meditating and pondering. It's a strange incident, isn't it? And by strange, I don't mean uh, strange to the way in which we think, but strange in the context in which it is set in the Gospels. Because here is something that happened to Jesus. Between his baptism in the Jordan and his death on Calvary, it's in that period of time marked by his humanity that he was transfigured. He accomplished many changes in the bodies of others. Blind, the deaf, the lame, even the dead. But here is something that happened to his body. And there's nothing quite like it. Between the Jordan and Golgotha. Yes, there was that one occasion when he walked on the water. But his body did not change. He was asserting his lordship over things created and material. His disciples thought he was a spirit. He wasn't. It was this same Jesus, that same body. But here on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a huge difference, wasn't there? We'll come back to that. But I wanted to highlight its distinctiveness. 
uniqueness in terms of the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second thing that we are told about in this section of 2 Peter 1 is the inspiration of the Old Testament. For that is what he is speaking about in these verses. He calls it the prophecy of Scripture, the writing, predicting of the prophets. And goes on to say that no such prophecy came about by the effort or the wit of human beings, but was the result of the Holy Spirit working harmoniously with their minds and spirits, not typing by way of dictation, but working inwardly and using their personality and ability so that what resulted was what God the Holy Spirit wanted recorded. But it isn't only the writing of the prophets that Peter refers to in this epistle in that way. He refers to what he wrote as well in verses 12 to 15, putting on record things that he wanted remembered after his departure. And not only did he refer to what he wrote, he referred to what the other apostles wrote. Chapter 3, verse 1, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. So alongside the Old Testament prophets, he puts the New Testament apostles, includes himself, and also later includes the Apostle Paul. In chapter 3 and verse uh, 15, our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. So here we have the transfiguration, and here we have the inspiration of the Old and the New Testaments, because Peter is putting them all on the same level, the result of that unique, infallible inspiration, verbal, inerrant of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, each of these commands attention, thought, study, prayer. Remarkable content, then, in this section. But I want us to face up this morning to the question of why Peter wrote these things. Not so much content, but intent. Because the inspiration of the Holy Scripture is not just linked to data. It's linked to purpose. There's aim. There's benefit. There's a goal in view. Why did the Apostle Peter 
moved by the Holy Spirit, put on record his being a first-hand witness of the transfiguration and also part and parcel of the Holy Spirit's unfolding of the mind and will of God for the church in Holy Scripture. Why? Well, of course, we are dependent on him for an answer to that question. And if he hadn't answered it, then we're just left to guesswork. It might be educated guesswork. It might be inferential. But it's still guesswork. But he gave the reason. And this is what I want to underline for us. Because his reason was to encourage believers to be steadfast. He alludes to the need for steadfastness in the opening words of verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to his ministry among those churches in Asia Minor listed at the beginning of the first of his epistles. He'd preached there, as others had. Paul, for example. He'd preached there. And in their preaching and teaching, they had referred to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was part of their gospel. And it was believed, and churches resulted. But after the establishment of churches, from within them and from without them, Sometimes the, the borderline between the church and the world is very, very thin indeed. There had come those who had denied the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like, as he tells us in chapter 2, just like in the Old Testament, false prophets arose uh, um, in, in Israel. So, Throughout the Christian era, this will happen too. And it was happening at the time. And this is why Peter said, Now we did not make known to you myths, because that was what was being said. And what was being said with some effect. You know, lies. It isn't just truth that has power. Lies have power. The power of truth is to instruct us in the knowledge of God. The power of the lie is the exact opposite. To deprive us of the knowledge of God and his ways. In chapter 2 he says, Because of them the way of truth will be brought into disrepute. So he's underlining what he has proclaimed, which was being challenged. The power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to be more specific as to what he meant by that in chapter 3, where he talks about the day of the Lord coming like a thief. 
the heavens and the earth being burnt up but transformed. Judgment coming. You believe the Lord is returning, don't you? I know many of you do. How long ago was it you first heard that? All right, I won't be specific. 50 plus for a good number of us. And he hasn't come. Almost a hundred. And he hasn't come. 500. Back to the time of the Great Reformation. He hasn't come. 2,000. Back to the time of Peter and Paul and John. And he hasn't come. Do you still believe? Are you still sure? Absolutely. Ever have any troublesome thoughts about it? I'd better be careful or I'll be doing the devil's work for him. But that was the kind of thing, you see, that was going on. Can you think of... We've lived through days when the truth of God's word generally has been denied and rejected. But perhaps in particular we can say this, that the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, with all the holy angels, with those who have gone to their rest and reward, his return at the end of time, the dawn of glory, the crack of doom. That in particular has been lost sight of. You know, doesn't it seem as if people are more confident that they are going to save the world? Plastic, carbon, rare species, Atmosphere, space, find another world. And what has the church got to say? It can no longer say in the beginning God. Nor in the end God. As you and I think about time passing. The Lord not having returned. On what do we depend for confidence that he will? That is what Peter was dealing with. And you know that he offers this help, doesn't he? One day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Not that little word as or like. It doesn't mean that In heavenly mathematics, 24 hours equals a millennium, or vice versa. But that from the 
standpoint of an infinite being not confined by space and time, yet everywhere present, not limited as to what can be foreseen and predicted and guaranteed, not having to wait to find out how things are going to unfold before wondering what next to do. Man does that. But God, for him, everything is now. What Peter wrote, our waiting for its fulfillment is one great now. We aren't reminding him of what he wrote. We are being reminded by what he wrote. And that does help, doesn't it? But how much? Because, you see, it only helps to explain delay, doesn't it? When you and I are wondering, those first century Christians, they were expecting the Lord's return in the very, very near future. Read Thessalonians. He hasn't come, but he is coming. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Human beings can promise, and 24 hours they've forgotten what they said. And if you have to remind them, oh, sorry, don't remember that. The Lord isn't like that. What he says is not only always relevant, it's always remembered. It helps us then with regard to delay. But we need more. And Peter gives us more. This is what I want to leave with you. What he gives us is the word of prophecy, the Old Testament predictions about the day of the Lord. We read a, a little excerpt from Isaiah 2. Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Micah, Malachi, Zechariah, full of them. The day of the Lord is the Lord himself, not some intermediary, the Lord himself becoming present, visible in the world that he has made to judge his foes, to save his people. Enter into the rock, hide in the dust, says Isaiah for fear of the Lord and the glory of his power. He's coming. There's that prophetic word 
time and time again throughout the Old Testament. And Peter says, we have that prophetic word made more sure. By what? The transfiguration. It's the transfiguration as event witnessed, heard, seen, recorded, which is a picture of the day of the Lord guaranteeing those promises and assuring the future. You see, it was a remarkable incident, wasn't it? Jesus and the twelve disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says to them, What's the current thinking about me? Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Whom do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. Human opinion, human learning isn't the means by which this remarkable insight was given to Peter. It was revelation. It was a light from above with regard to that man among men who had been a boy among boys, who had grown up as a youth. Peter declared him to be God. Not just God, but God's Son. And so Jesus pronounced him blessed. And then, as you know, the conversation went on and Peter resorted to reason and current religious opinion and so on. And then Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there are some of you who are standing here, the disciples, who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or until they see the kingdom of God, or until they see the kingdom of God come with power on six days after. He took with him Peter, James, and John. James was going to be martyred. So was Peter later. John was going to be put to that living death on the Isle of Patmos. He took them apart. They climbed the mountain and he began to pray. They'd seen him pray before. Luke 11 records that. As normal. And suddenly, and suddenly, They saw him as they'd never seen him before. 
It wasn't a process. It wasn't evolution. It wasn't some kind of metamorphosis. He was there, bodily. But his face shone like the sun. His, his clothing, white as light, he was bathed in glory. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, a few seconds earlier, everything was as was. Then, no longer. And lo and behold, two figures appeared, Moses and Elijah. The law, the prophets. And they're there with Jesus. And they're talking with him, not just to him, with they to him, he to them, about his decease, his exodus, his death, that he is going to accomplish. He's going to accomplish something in that death that no other death could ever bring about. They're talking together and Peter is all at a loss. He's impressed. So are they all. They're afraid. They don't know what to say, what to do. But this is the point. And here Peter is saying, we were with Oh, weigh these words. Learn them. We were with him on the holy mountain. We were eyewitnesses. We heard the voice from heaven. We were there. Think of a human law court. There's a man in the witness box. He's come to give testimony. And this is the time for him to be, or for her to be, cross-examined. The council does not want to hear the words, I think. Does not want the expression, it seemed to me as if. All the council wants is, I was there. I saw, I heard, that's it. And that is what you have here. Yes, the predictions of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, they're incredible. And Revelation is too. The transfiguration had witnesses. It fulfilled the old and it anticipated the new. And you have the record. People say, oh, I wish I were there. I would have now. You wouldn't have. No one could have known who Jesus was except by the Revelation of the Holy Spirit, just 
as it is now. So then. But there were those who were there then. First hand testimony. Primary source material. Can't get behind it. You know the only there are only two things you can do with it. If you are honest. And the first is not to be done. It's this. It's to say I don't believe it. Correction. I won't believe it. Because it isn't a matter of evidence. Here's the evidence. And if we want, throw in the long history of the Christian church in the wake of it. There's no lack of evidence. If you don't believe it, it's not for lack of evidence. It's because you won't. None so deaf as those who will not hear. None so blind as those who will not see. This is what sin is. It's moral, self-centered, arrogant darkness. You know nothing about it, but you're deriding it. Is that reasonable? But then sin is madness. Don't do it. Take the other. This is what we're encouraged to do. Lord, I know nothing. I wasn't there. I was blind. I could not see. I could not hear. But I, I believe. And I expect. It's a light that shines in a dark place until the day of the Lord dawns. And it will. And it will be sudden. Just as sudden as the transfiguration, as its beginning, except that this will have no end when he returns. Prepare now. Because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he'll come. It won't be. He hasn't come yet. It won't be, but he will come. He's here. Present. Too late. Or the beginning of Endless joy and glory in his holy presence. Why will you not believe? Why will you not continue to believe? Amen.